Lord, we come before you and we ask that you guide and lead us as we look further into the story of Esther and that you will show us what you would want us to see and help us to understand how it applies to our lives. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Esther chapter 7. But I want to read the last part of chapter 6 just to reset our where we're at. So we're going to go back to read, start at 13 of chapter 6 just to get a little bit of place. And Haman told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had befallen him. Then said his, his wise men, and Zeresh, his wife, unto him, If Mordecai be the seed of the Jews before whom you have begun to fall, you shall not prevail against him, but surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, came the king's chamberlains, and hastened to bring Haman into the banquet of Esther that Esther had prepared. So again, we're going to remember that Haman has set up the, the, the destruction of the Jews. He sent out letters in the name of the king. Uh, he's set up a gallows for, for Mordecai to be hung on. Part of his plan is at, the, at this next feast with Esther that he's going to ask for Haman, uh, Mordecai to be, to be oh. hung on this 75-foot <laughs> gallows. But in between that time, remember in this last chapter, the king couldn't sleep. He had the records read to him. Mordecai had saved his life, hadn't been rewarded, so he asked Haman who, how should we reward him, and Haman had to march him around the city in, roy, in, the, in the royal garments on the king's horse and saying, this is what's going to be done to the man that the king who wishes to honor. And then so he comes... But, but Haman thinks it's him. He thinks no. when, he, when he told him what to do, he thought it was going to be him that was going to be doing this. But then he had to march Mordecai all around the town saying this thing. And, he, and you've got to remember, he hates Mordecai. And now he's starting to see Mordecai being lifted up in the king's eyes. And yet he's, he was planning to ask for Mordecai to be hung. So he's, he's in a big trouble spot at this point. You know, the king is, king is raising Mordecai up and he wants Mordecai dead. Right. And so his, so his family and his wise people are saying, hey, you're, you're, you're in trouble. They don't know how much trouble he's in, as we're going to see in this next chapter. So get, getting us caught up at that point, verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman came to the banquet of Esther the queen, and the king said again unto Esther on the second day at the banquet of the wine, What is your petition, Queen Esther, and it shall be granted unto you? What is your request, and it shall be performed even to half of my kingdom? So again, they come to this banquet. It's just as far as the men are concerned. It's Haman and the king and whatever servants are there, but they are the guests of honor to her, her home for this banquet. And it's just the two of them, the king after the banquet. And remember the banquet of the wine is what follows the, the food and the wine and the fruit. And so he's at the end part of the banquet and he goes, okay, what is your request? And this time, Esther in verse 3, And Esther the queen answered unto him and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given unto me at my petition and my people at my request. For we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. But if we had been, if we'd been, but if we'd been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. So her request comes to the king, and this is going to shock the king, obviously, because he doesn't, remember, he does not know her lineage. And she says, 
I've been sentenced to death. And all my people, and I want you to give us our lives back. And if you can imagine how the king is going to feel at this point, his queen, the one he's you know, made special, has told him that she's been sentenced to death. And he's actually the only one that can sentence somebody to death, which is going to shock him because, hold it, what's going on here? And he's going to be, he's going to be kind of uh, a little frustrated at this point. And she says to him, you know, hey, if all we were going to do is be sold into slavery, you know, bond women and bond servants, you know, I'd have just been quiet. That's, you know, we were already halfway there anyway. We're slaves already of the kingdom, you know. But if all we were to do is take away our possessions and make us slaves as we were in Egypt, basically, is what she's thinking, there would have been no big deal. I would have kept my mouth shut. Goes, but we are sentenced to death. There, there, and she goes, if, you, if my soul wasn't at, at, at stake and my people's souls, I wouldn't have spoken. And here we are in verse 5. Then the king Ahasuerus answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he and where is he that does prevail, uh, presume in his heart to do so? Okay. And he's like, you know, well, what's going on here? Who's, who's, who's planning to kill you and your people? And the king is perplexed because, again, she has not told him her lineage. Uh, and he hasn't cared. He fell in love with her. He didn't care anything about her past or how she was related to and what her people, people were. She came from, she came actually from out of the palace. So she's, she's not somebody that's, you know, he's not expecting her to be an enemy or anything. So he, as far as he's concerned, she's a citizen of the, of the realm. And... Esther answered in verse 6, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid, and it literally means terrified, before the king and queen. And you can imagine this. We've, this way I read before. Haman's already in some distress. He wants to kill Mordecai. He's even written orders that are going, that, that are going to help kill Mordecai at the end of the year. And the king is raising up Mordecai, and now he's sitting at a banquet with just him and the, and the king and the queen, and she calls him out as the enemy trying to kill him, kill her and his, and his people. Can you imagine? They just had a feast. He's, you know, the king has told Esther that she can have anything she wants. My book says Haman grew pale with fright before the king and queen. That's a good, that's a good description because it literally means he was terrified to the point of death. So that's a good good translation of it because he was, you know, it's amazing he didn't have a heart attack right there and there and right there in front of him. You know, it's you know, he's already been terrified because, you know, he sees all of his plans starting to crumble. And this is one of the things that we as Christians, if we let God be our defense, we will watch the enemy's plans fall apart, fall apart and crumble as God starts moving the pieces to make it happen. And here, you know, Esther's not even saying kill him. She's just saying, hey, save, save my people. And this is why, especially in the Psalms class, we keep talking about God is our defense. If we just sit back and watch God work, he will work. Sometimes we want to say something, you know, as in Esther's case, because she's trying to save the entire nation. Right. She, you know, her call isn't even for her to be saved. It's for my, me and my people. <laughs> Nobody's going to kill her in the palace, you know, at that point, you know, at, up to this point. But sometimes we are to speak, but usually if we just be quiet, don't think you're going to escape. Right. Yeah. If you, keep silent, if you keep silent, 
God will raise up defense from someplace else, but you won't, don't think you're going to escape by keeping silent. And yes, if we are supposed to say something and we don't, God will judge us for not standing up. And, but for the most part, we need to just be silent and let God be our defense. Because as I said, the more we try to defend ourselves, and at least in what I have seen and felt in my own life, the more I try to defend myself, usually the bigger mess I make out of it. And I, if I will just sit back and let God be my defense, I'll watch everything falling apart. And in this case, we see Haman's plans are all started falling apart even before Esther speaks. Uh, so Esther said Haman was his, their enemy and Haman, Haman was terrified before the king and queen because here the queen is accusing him. The king can you know, kill him instantly at this point because <laughs> you know, he's, he's just found out he's threatened the queen inadvertently and, uh, and she's basically just now said, this is my people. I am, I am Jewish and Haman is trying to kill but she didn't our come, people. Do you think she came right out and said, I am a Jewish? She said that when she said, my people are about to be killed, I and my people are about to be killed, and then she identified Haman as her enemy, she was saying, I'm Jewish. Roundabout, I mean, king know, the king knows which group Haman was trying to kill. It's not like Haman had five or six groups, as far as we know. You know, he had right. just the Jews he's out to kill. So and the king's use, and he's using the king's name to kill the Jews. And as soon as she points her finger at him, she's saying, I am a Jew. Okay, she didn't, she didn't come right out and say, hey, I'm a Jew in those words by what is recorded here. But we're going to learn in chapter 8 that she identified who she was. And so Haman at this point is terrified because now not only has Mordecai been elevated up in the king's sight, now all of a sudden he's finding out that he's made an enemy in, you know, that is, is as close to the king as you can get. And the king loves Esther because obviously he loves her. He's held out the golden scepter to her and, and twice now said, you know, ask what you want, you know, actually three times now, at the throne, at the first banquet, and now the second banquet, ask what you want up to half the kingdom and you can have it. In other words, anything you want, you, you know, you can't have my kingdom, but you can have anything you want. Up to half of it, you know, and now Haman, you know, like I said, I'm surprised he didn't have a heart attack right there in the, uh, at that moment, you know, in his terror. I can just imagine terror. Haman sitting right here and Esther goes, you know, King Esther, King says, what do, what do you want, Esther, what do you want? And she says, well, my He wants to kill me. <laughs> yeah, he's my enemy. I mean, sitting right there across the table from him. Yeah. And this is not a nice king, okay? We see a pretty soft side of him here in the palace, but uh, this king is a mighty general. He, he is not opposed to killing his enemies. Uh, and all of a sudden, Haman is right sitting there being, you know, raising himself up against the queen, even though he did not know it at the time. And so we look at verse 7, and the king rose up from the banquet of the wine in his wrath, and this word for wrath is his hot anger. I mean, uh, he's going off trying to cool down for just a moment because it's very surprising in his anger. You know, maybe he didn't have a sword or something, but if he had had a sword on him at that time, Haman probably would have been dead at that moment. That's what this word indicates. He is angry and he's walking away from the, the banquet into the, and it says that he, that he went into the palace gardens or the house gardens 
And Haman stood up to make a request for his life to Esther the queen, for he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. So the, queen, the king walks out of the banquet room into the, into the garden because he already understands the law. Okay, The law in, when, in the Medo-Persian Empire was when the king signed a decree, it could not be reversed. All right? This we see in Daniel 6. I want to just go to Daniel 6 for a moment. Looking at... We'll read a section. We'll start at verse... We'll start at verse 4, for those who don't know the story. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom... But they could not find any occasion nor fault, for as much he was, he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault in, found in him. And this is a pretty amazing statement when you think about it. These guys don't like Daniel. They want to get rid of him, so they look for anything in his life that they can attack. Uh, and usually, even in this day, politicians and rulers had something in their life that you could say that they were wrong. They lied, they misrepresented, they had, uh, you know, affairs or, you know, uh, you know, people on the side that they, that they could go. For these guys to not be able to find anything against Daniel speaks very highly of Daniel's lifestyle before God. And we already know his lifestyle. I mean, he honored God. But for having, and we know there's lots of them, you know, that were going, watching him. Looking for anything wrong, anything they could use against him politically. And they couldn't find anything. And that says quite a bit for Daniel's character. And it says, Then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Then these pres presidents and princes as assembled themselves to the king and said to him, King Darius, live forever. And King Darius is actually Artaxerxes. I believe grandfather or father, I can't remember off the top of my head. All the princes, presidents and king, kingdom and governors and princes and counselors and captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute and make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for 30 days, save you, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. Now the king established the decree and signed the writing that it should not be changed according to the law of the Medo-Persians, which alters not. So the whole point on this I wanted to show is the king, Medo-Persians, when they signed something, they couldn't even change their mind. All right? And uh, he's going to find out that these guys tricked him. It wasn't all of them that said that. They kind of left out Daniel, and they played to his ego. And in verse... Let's uh, 14. Then the king, when these words were heard, was sore displeased with himself because they came to him accusing Daniel, because Daniel prayed anyway, and set the heart of Daniel to deliver him, and he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. So the king basically called out all the lawyers <laughs> in the kingdom and said, how can I change this? Because he did not want Daniel to be thrown in. But I bring this up just because we're seeing this same situation back in, Esther, uh, in, the, in the book of Esther. The, the decree that has been signed with, under the king's name, with his seal, by, Morde, uh, by, by Haman to kill the Jews, is something that he can't change. All right, and we're going to see how they get around that a little bit. But, so he walks out in anger, knowing that he can't change the decree. 
and probably trying to figure out how he's going to kill Haman <laughs> at this point. Haman stands up and he makes a plea to Esther. Okay, He now knows that the only person who's going to be able to save his life is Esther. And so he stands up and pleads with Esther because he saw that there was going to be evil. The king's, the king's out to kill him, basically, he knows. Verse 8, then the king returned to the palace garden, from the palace garden, into the place of the banquet of the wines, and Haman was fallen on the bed wherein Esther was. Then said the king, will he force the queen also before me in the, in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. So this, this idea that he fell on, on, fell, had fallen on the bed, he, he probably kind of, he was so worried that he kind of forgot protocol. He should not have sat on the same sofa. And this word fallen literally means he was prostate. You know, and the king walks in and he sees somebody laying on the queen's sofa. And he's already angry with this individual, Haman. And it, there's no, idea, no implication that there's, there's any kind of sexual thing going on, but he's fallen on this sofa pleading for his life with Esther, and the king is already angry with him and says, oh, now you're going to try to force Esther out or subdue or uh, make, you know, he's almost fainted. He hasn't actually fainted, but he's, so he's, are you going to assault? Basically, assault he's, queen you're going to not, now you're going to assault my queen oh, in front of me. Yeah, well, I'm in that. You know, you're in my house and you're going to assault the queen because she's accused you, basically, is what he's saying. You know, uh, make her subservient, you know, try to force her to, change. to change her mind about you. Uh, and he's already angry, so he's not going to listen to anything that's, that he's going to say. And it says that they went in and they covered Haman's face. They actually basically arrested him and, and covered him, and, and you know they're getting ready to take him away. And, and Harbonah, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, Behold also the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman has made for Mordecai, and has spoken good, who has spoken good of the king, Standeth at the house of Haman. Then the king said, hang him on him. <laughs> I think you told us before how high 50 cubits 75 high. feet. Approximately, given, given an 18-inch cubic. Mine says 75 feet. Yeah. So Har is one of the people that was sent way back in chapter 1 to go get Vashti. He's one of the important people to the king. Okay, and he's one of the servants, so they, when they said that these are the only two men being invited to this, you know, this guy's standing there, but he's not participating in the feast. And he goes, oh, by the way, king, uh, there's, there's gallows made out there already. He made them for Mordecai, and you just know all of a sudden this is all starting to go in. Hold on, I just promoted Mordecai, and he's wanting to kill him, and he wants to kill my queen. And so his, in, his statement was just instantly, go hang him on his, on his gallows. And we see the demise, how God has put everything in place for him to fall from as high a position, like number two in the kingdom, he's fallen to being hung on the, on the gallows in less than 24 he hours. He to pay a lot of money to reach <laughs> he, Oh, he offered a lot of money on top of that, but he's given money to the treasury to, hang, to kill all these people. But in 24 hours, we see him fall from second highest position in the kingdom to dead. Mm. And all the steps in between as he, as he saw, saw his demise. 
And when God moves to defend us, it happens oftentimes just that quick. We look at it and say, everything's going against me. Everything is moving against me. And the, I've got all these enemies. And the next moment you know, all these enemies have been dealt with. And this is how God works in our lives. And we see this over and over again in people's lives where everything's coming against them, God moves, and everything disappears. We see this in Paul's life over and over again. People will move to try to kill him, and God delivers him. And until the very end, but God doesn't always deliver. You know, sometimes he lets it happen, but God moves in our life. He puts things in our life. And as he says, all things work together for good. Even when, even when we are put down in place, God will eventually win because he will always defend his people in the long run. Uh, he told the Babylonians, because he used Babylonian, Babylonia to the Babylon Empire to punish his people, but then he went on to say, because you were so abusive to them, I'm holding you accountable and punishing you. Now, granted, that was years later, but he, God still, in his time, disciplines and brings discipline on for people who hurt his children. And so this is the place where we can always be absolutely sure the judgment of God will eventually fall. Maybe not even in our lifetime, but it will fall, and, the, and he will say, this is why. When the children of Israel went into the promised land, they were to punish all those nations that for 430 years had been doing everything wrong against God and had not listened and, and had kept getting worse. And so God said, okay, you've had 430 years to correct and repent, so now I'm going to judge and, and, and destroy. And that just gives us a point of God's timing is different from our timing. You know, we want him to do it, you know, like, like I have the habit of saying, usually we want God to work yesterday. <laughs> You know, we don't even want him to work today or tomorrow. We wanted him to work yesterday. And we get impatient with him, and God's saying, I'm giving the time for them to repent. Because ultimately, if they repent, God's going to honor that and reward them for their repentance. And we should be joyful that they repented. Uh, we have trouble sometimes with that forgiveness. And, you know, well, God, they, didn't, they never got punished. Well, <laughs> they lost reward during that period of time. But, you know, we need to be careful. God always wants to get people delivered and repented. And we're always looking for vengeance. And God is wanting to love people. And so we need to be learning to rejoice in repentance. Usually when somebody repents, you know, you'll hear, well, well, they're just doing it to stay out of trouble. We don't know that. Now, especially if they repent before they get into trouble. And this is what I say. If somebody repents or asks for forgiveness before they're caught, it's usually true repentance, unless it's right at the edge of being caught. If they repent after everything's fallen apart, if Haman had repented at this point when everything's fallen apart, he's not repenting for what he's done. He's repenting for getting caught. And I have very little tolerance for people who repent and, and ask for forgiveness when they're caught. Because usually they're not sorry for what they've done. They're sorry they got caught. Uh, if you repent before you're caught, or before the axe is going to fall, then you go, okay, this is somebody who's repenting out of true repentance. Mm -hmm. But even at that, as Christians, we need to say, okay, God, you know whether it's right or not. 
help me have grace to forgive them and let this go. And I can't tell you how many times in a church you'll hear somebody, well, but that's not who they are. You know, this is what they were doing last year or two years ago or 10 years ago or 50 years ago, whatever it is. And go, God changes people. I have to accept that God is changing them until they prove to me that they're not really changed. And this is very critical for us as Christians that we be willing to say God can change the person. And there's thousands, millions of people who have had their lives changed and are truly changed. And we look at that, you know, because if we look at people's past, everybody has a past that can trip them up. And then everybody does. Even somebody who's a from, Christian from a young age has things in their past that can make them look bad if they were to be brought out. And we need to be able to, Paul tells us to know no man after the flesh. And that literally means not to look at their sins from their past, but to know that they are a new creation in Christ and accept that. And very important I had somebody in this church trying to tell me, well, this is, you know, I want to tell you all about these people and what they're, sin you know, what they're, where they're from. And I go, I don't care. I don't care what they were in the past. I want to know who they are in Christ now. Not what they've done in the past or who they were in the past, because I want to know what God is making them to be. And that is getting to know people after Christ. And even if I know what they've done in the past, I still don't want to know them after the past. I want it to be under the blood unless they prove to me that they're still who they were. And, and that doesn't mean that they fall once or twice, but that means they make a lifestyle of making <laughs> that same decision, whatever that decision might be, whether it's you know, homosexuality, fornication, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is. If, if they say that they've changed, I'm going to take them at their word that they're changed until they prove not that they fall once or twice, but they make a lifestyle of what they used to be. And even then, I'm going to pray for them and try to encourage them to be in Christ and let Christ be their new life. Because I can look at me. I have a tendency to be a workaholic, and I have to be careful about that all the time. I mean, my first son barely ever saw me until he was in about ninth grade when I finally got it through my head that I shouldn't be a workaholic. Uh, and it took me many years to get there. And I still have the tendencies to, to be that way. How, how old am I? I'm 54. <laughs> old enough to have made a lot of mistakes. Uh, but I have that problem. And I have to be very careful not to get so busy that I ignore my wife now, since all the kids are moved out. But because I have that tendency to just want to do things and be successful or whatever I do. But all of us have something in our life that says, <laughs> be careful. You know, this can trip you up. You can fall back into it. And we want to be able to say, God is in control. And here we see God moving. And it's amazing we see how he moved behind the scenes. Even before Esther made her, her request, we see Haman's life starting to fall apart. And again, I've seen this over and over again where people who have moved against God have had their life start to fall apart. And God defends. And he still defends. He made his own gallows. He made his own gallows, even though he wasn't thinking it was for him. 
But he also saw that, you know, he saw what was happening. You know, when, as soon as he had to give Mordecai praise, and, and it's amazing that he was the one chosen to be the one that had to do this. You know, he hates the guy, he's built a gallows for him, and now he's parading him around town and wrong, giving him praise. Wrong ethnic. You know, but God will do this kind of thing to, to people all the time. And we probably had it happen in our own lives where we're starting to make the wrong decisions and God kind of starts tearing apart our life and trying to bring us to repentance. Could, could Haman have come to repentance and tried to change? He could have, if he'd have known God in, you know, in a way. Would he have? Well, he hated, hated the Jews and he hated the God of the Jews, so no, he wouldn't have. But, you know, but at any point, he could have repented. We look at somebody like Judas Iscariot who sold Jesus into... To, to death, he could have repented and returned to God and been converted back to what he was. But he didn't. He hung himself. You know, his, his conviction led to his suicide rather than repenting. We see Peter. He was sorry, though. He was sorry. He was, he was sorry for he what wanted, he did, not for, not for... He didn't want it to be such a capital crime. Yeah. He had a sorrow, but not a, not a repentance in his sorrow. There's a good point there. There's and Peter, who denied Jesus in front of, you know, and you think of the people he denied himself, you know, he started by cutting, you know, ready to fight for him in the Garden of Gethsemane and grabs a sword and cuts the servant's ear off. And then standing in the court, he denies that he knows Jesus, not to soldiers, <laughs> not to politicians, but to servants. And the last one was to a, to a young maid. You know, that's the one that he started swearing when the cock crowed, you know, it was to a young girl who had, was really no threat to him at all, other than to say, I know you're one of them, right. you know, I saw you. and you see, you see the progression and then he runs off in sorrow. He could have done the same thing as, as Judas did and say, well, I'm not going to be ever able to come back to him, but he did come back to repentance and did great things for God. Judas Iscariot had that same opportunity. And that's hard for us to understand. You know, hey, you sold Jesus, but you know, God always is willing to forgive. Anything can be forgiven if you are truly repentant and sorrowful. And that is good for us to know, especially if we mess up really bad and we do something really bad, God still will forgive us. And we look at somebody as bad as Hitler is, and he's about as bad as anybody you can think of. You know, Hitler could have confessed to Jesus and asked him into his heart and been saved. Now, I have no anticipation that he did that, but it is possible that he could have. And we would see him in heaven in that case. Why? Because it's all by grace. And we've got to be very careful when we look at somebody. When we look at whoever the worst person that we know personally is they can be saved by grace so is it wrong when we get up there to go all right i made it hey i want to meet Hitler. i want to meet hitler that'd be wrong mm. <laughs> if he's in heaven no but i mean no. What, would that be wrong to be saying hey i made it cool i want to meet hitler <laughs> when we get to heaven we're not, we're going to really understand that it is all by grace right because we're going to see who we are once we get there in our glorified state and realize that we don't deserve to be there. Right. And that's where it's really going to be. And this is where we're supposed to be in this world. 
that we truly come to the place where we know that we don't belong here. Right. We know that we don't belong here. It's, it is something that, that when we get to heaven... This is only temporary. You know, we know this is temporary, but you know, if we got what we deserved, we know that we deserve hell. And when we get to heaven, we're going to really, truly, fully understand how much by grace it is and really appreciate it. There's not going to be, well, I made it in our mind. It's going right. to be, thank you, God, that you, that you allowed me to come through this. this. Yeah. Yeah, th when we sing the song, I can only imagine, you know, where it says, you know, will I dance it, you know, for him or will I fall to my, on my face? Our first impact in heaven, when we first see Jesus, we're going to fall on our face because that's what everybody did every time they saw an angel or they saw the Christos Christophanies. They fall on their face because the full impact of, of who we're standing in front of us will, will be there. At some point, we'll get over that <laughs> falling on our face, but I think we'll still have that worship in, our, in us. And you'll say, stand, and then we'll be able to enjoy the rest of it. Mm -hmm. But the idea of being in heaven is going to be so, so overwhelming to us when we realize we don't deserve to be here. It's all, all His grace. And we're supposed to be that way here on this earth, but we oftentimes kind of forget that it's all by grace sometimes. And we get a little full of ourselves and think that, you know, we've done something that deserves something. And then God will usually kind of smack us upside the head a little bit once in a while on earth and say, hey, you know, it's all by grace. And, you know, the more, a lot of times being saved later in life helps people in that because they realize what they've been saved from. Right. So the ones who have the biggest problems are people like myself who grew up following God and didn't go into the, quote-unquote big sins you know out there and for us sometimes we get in this you know somehow I deserve this and we see it a lot of times with people you know kids who've grown up in the church you know and they have a hard time sometimes even seeing themselves as sinners mm -hmm. and uh, God has to reveal there are sins in your life you are you don't deserve any of this it's all by grace and we grab hold of it eventually and I can remember one in my lifetime wondering you know especially when I'd listen to somebody get saved out of alcohol or drugs or the mafia or something, you know, and you'd listen to their testimony and you think, you know, wow, I have no, I have no real testimony in my life, you know, I've just followed God most of my life, you know, yeah, I've sinned, I've done a few things, but nothing like these guys. And one time I had an opportunity to talk to one of those guys and they go, you don't understand, any of us that have this testimony would trade our testimony for walking with God all of our lives. <laughs> Uh, instead of having to have gone through all the problems that we've gone through. And that kind of made me feel good in, in one sense, you know, even though you, don't, you still don't feel like you have this great big <laughs> testimony, yet following God is a testimony because there are a lot of people who haven't. And not that I haven't had problems like anybody else or sins in my life. I've had plenty, but nothing, nothing like many people do where they've had adultery and fornication or drugs or you know, this long, dark road. But it is important for us to always remember it is good. I, lo I love knowing that God is with me always. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes I turn and enter a dark room and leave God standing outside for 10, 15 minutes. But God is with me always. Yeah. Yep. And he's always going to be there. Mm -hmm. He's always going to be there. He's always supporting 
And even when we're walking with him, he's still there and he's the reason we're walking with him in the, in, in, in the end, end of it. Because if we weren't, it would been, we would have lived in our own flesh and done things wrong. And for those who have managed to live a fairly good life, it's only because of God's grace anyway. And them allowing him to work in their life to keep them from going off. So it's really a big testimony. It really is a big testimony to have walked that way. It just doesn't seem it when you're trying to share it with people. <laughs> and, but God is there. He's working. He's working in everybody's life all the time. And all we have to do is let him. Let him crucify our flesh. Let him work through us and walk with him. And it's never an easy thing. It's always a hard thing. <laughs> but we do it by letting him live through us. And that's whether it's the day-to-day -day life and somebody who hasn't had really bad life or the day-to-day -day life of those who had a really bad life and realize that everything is, you know, they have an easier time realizing everything's of God because they know where they were without him. And it's a little harder for those who've been grown up with him because it becomes normal to them. And this is why I share with people, we need to be careful that we don't take God's blessings and can start considering them normal and forget who we would be without him. Because it's important for us to always remember, who would we be without him? And I know that I would have been in trouble without him because he took away a temper that was very harsh on people. And I probably would have killed somebody, if not more than one person in my lifetime, without God. Just because I know who I was at a young age and how, how hard and vicious I, I could be. And as I got strength of an older person, I know I would have killed somebody at some point because I hurt people before. And so we need to keep in mind, this is what God has done. This is who he has made us. And it's him who makes us. It's him who put Esther in the court. It's him who gave her the beauty to impress the king. It's him that gave Mordecai in there the wisdom to, to move all, the, all this. Without him, none of this would have happened. The Jews would have been annihilated by Haman and would have been the end of the story. And yet God put everybody in place with all the skills they needed to accomplish things. And I love it when I watch how God moves in different people's lives, in my life, and other people's lives, and, and different churches, and you see him, all the miracle, miraculous things when you look at it. You know, the world would call it consequences or you know, just an amazing confluence of activities. No, they're planned activities that God has done. God moved the pieces in place to, for everything to happen, knowing that Esther would be able to stand up and say, thank you, you know, I'm going to take this challenge. Because she could have said no, and then God would have had somebody else in place. And we always want to keep in mind, God always has somebody there. I mean, when, when we don't witness to the person we're supposed to witness to, God will bring another person in to witness to them. The only problem is we were the one that was divinely created to speak to that person and would have been the best. So it says, you refuse, I'll bring in the next best and put somebody else in their life. They will always have that opportunity. I pray I do, I, I pray I do God's will in that. And we always want to do it. I'm not, I, I'm acting correctly and speaking correctly mm -hmm. in his will. I pray that that's what I'm doing, I'm not. Yeah, and that's an important thing. I apologize if I'm not. So this last verse in this chapter is, so they hung... 
payment on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, then was the king's wrath pacified. Okay, so hanging Haman was enough for him to be satisfied up to this point. And so the king's wrath subsided. Subsided or was pacified, was abated. Yeah. You want to use that Just word? Like it's happy. Well, not so much happy, but abated is a, is a better translation. Mine you know. says, so they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and then the king's anger subsided. And there's some idea that it was an impalement rather than a, than a hanging. He, he put up a, it says gallows in this, but it was some kind of wooden structure. It said a 75, mine says, a, Haman's, Haman has set up a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall in his own courtyard. Yeah. He intended to use it to impale Mordecai, the man who saved the king from assassination. And that was the type of thing that they did in, the, in that day. They would impale people and hang them up on the, for a, you know, it was actually the forerunning, that was a kind of the forerunning of the crucifixion that the Romans fully developed. Uh, and there was a lot of this kind of hang somebody up on a pole and put their bodies on display as they rotted away. So it could be a pole or a natural gallows. And either way, it really doesn't matter. He's, he's been put on display. And when they hung somebody, even when they hung somebody, they left them hanging there until they rotted too. So it's... Not like the Americans where we hung, hung people and we cut them down as soon as they were dead and, and got rid of their bodies. So we see God moving in here to save his people. And the king now is ready to listen and try to protect the Jews, which we'll see the rest of the protection and the rest as we move on. We're going to go ahead and close in prayer at this point. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you. We ask that you help us to see you working in and around our lives and that you give us patience to allow you to work so that we don't interfere with what you're doing. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.